there are some people out there who uh, might not want to hear about the Olympics anymore now that it's um, it's all over and done with and uh, you know went for two and a half weeks or so. But I think this was the biggest event uh, of any kind, biggest media event certainly for ages. And also, it's as a as a big event, it's going to be cited as the sort of thing that's possible in a, a world dealing with COVID. In fact, there has already been quite a bit of commentary um, to that point. The general sort of commentary from media seems to be uh, a lot of people thought it should have been cancelled or postponed, but in the end, it's gone quite well. But I read something like 430 cases uh, or tests associated with the Olympics, whether athletes or um, workers or volunteers on the Games have, have returned positive tests, so we'll have to see. But I thought there was this sort of let's get this over with kind of vibe in the media, and that wouldn't actually be much of a spectacle Um the athletes probably wouldn't enjoy it because of all the restrictions on them. However, as a TV event, uh, it seemed to be reasonably compelling. Uh, the Herald Sports editor, I thought of writing all these sort of look-back pieces, Dylan Cleaver, uh, he wrote one where he said uh, the Olympics were probably the last thing the city of Tokyo needed right now, but conversely, exactly what the world needed. He said he couldn't remember an Olympics where the public was uh, quite so engaged with it as this one. But he said, all I'll say is these Olympics have been a bit of a hoot and the world was probably ready for that about now. So I thought that was a fair summary and lots of people seem to agree with him. But uh, on the Scoop website, Gordon Campbell wrote a column where he sort of said, look, you have to remember that the abnormal was normalised, in his words, to get these games on. And he said, look, the media were a big part of that because the International Olympic Committee had media contracts that had signed in better days and the media networks in turn were kept of the sponsors who'd booked all their ad time and so on and so on. So he said uh, that the media is definitely one of the, the five rings of Olympic greed, as he put it, uh, that conspired to put these Olympics on when really, you know, they, uh, by any other logic, they would not have happened at all, or at least not this year. Has the media asked the question if it was worth it for Tokyo or indeed for any future host? Well, no, that's the interesting thing because the economic fallout, they, I mean, having no supporters in the stands will have hurt them. He also pointed out that the uh, insurance bill will be cat- uh, well, huge and for future Olympics that's also got a knock-on effect. Brisbane has been awarded the Games for, I think, 2032. They must be wondering what they've bought. Who would want to look into the future and see uh, what will happen then? But, um, yeah, Gordon said the people of Tokyo will have to cope with this, having you know not enjoyed the Games or been able to go to them uh, themselves, the citizens, and then there's still the danger that it could be a super spreader event. And with that in mind, there was a really interesting report. Um, it was the BBC's correspondent, Rupert Wingfield-Hayes, who was out and about in Tokyo in a way that most reporters weren't. He did a report about people, local people, Tokyo citizens, really enjoying themselves. There were bars open that were flouting the rules, selling uh, beer and wine and people at outside tables, and they were really enjoying it, saying, look, you know, we just have to do this. We we know about COVID, we know there's risks, but it's just time to do it, which is interesting. And he noted very few people had died of COVID while the Olympics were on. So he asked uh, a politics professor, Koichi Nakano, hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, was the threat overstated? And um, the answer was quite interesting because um, he compared it to the Titanic and he said, uh, he told Rupert Wingfield Hayes, the mood must have been quite jolly before the Titanic sunk. There is a time lag between the hole in the ship and the actual sinking taking place. There is a time lag between the rise of infection and the rise of the uh, seriously ill patients inundating the hospitals and leading to the collapse of the medical system. 
And I, I don't think uh, Rupert Wingfield Hayes was expecting a, a kind of a Titanic um, comparison, but uh, it sort of struck me that this is the sort of thing that our reporters weren't able to do. In the Rio Olympics, for example, you had Jack Tame for TVNZ. He was he was going out into the favelas of Rio, seeing if the people there resented the fact that all this money was being spent on that and the Football World Cup being held there while you know parts of their city were crumbling, uh, or whether they were you know happy to have a big international event there. So kind of a shame that we didn't have any sense really of what local people, uh, citizens of Tokyo thought about the games uh, because our journalists were you know, behind security fences and uh, trapped inside venues. Well how did the local TV coverage of the actual events go down with critics including you? <laughs> well I'm not a huge fan of most sports but I found it pretty compelling and you know it's interesting having free-to-air coverage TV1. You know, initially I thought it would be a terrible spectacle without fans in the stands it would be a flat atmosphere that wouldn't make for good television but uh, look I, I, I was wrong I did find it compelling even in the sports I'm not normally interested in but look I'm not an expert um, and at Peter Williams though is he did uh, he's been at a lot of olympic games or anchored them from tvnz studio he's now a, a magic talk uh, talk radio host and on his program this is his um one minute take on his magic talk show last monday um on how he thought the local media did but in the new zealand media these days it's all about saving money and sadly that showed the worst offenders of course were radio I thought their so-called commentary coverage was pathetic because they just took the, the TV commentary, which is entirely unsuited to radio. Gee, I think back to the days when radio commentators at the Olympic Games were actually at the venues. Then, to save money, they were in off-tube booths at the broadcast centre in the Olympic City. Then, to save even more money, they were in voiceover booths doing live calls in Auckland. And now to save even more money, they're not doing any radio commentary at all. So I thought radio commentary coverage was hopeless, especially with so many events on during the daytime here when people didn't necessarily have access to television. But that's the current state of the New Zealand media. No money, poor quality reporting and poor quality commentary on the greatest sport events, sporting event in the world. He's right, though, um, from his experience when he's talking about commentators uh, on the actual game itself. He's not talking about reporting. He's talking about uh, a commentator as they go through the game, isn't he? Yeah, very much so. And he said, you know, when we get this uh, international feed from the host broadcaster, where they've, they've got to be neutral. They're just doing a, a commentary that could go out to any number of countries. He says, it's really boring, he said. He was quite, he was really boring when New Zealanders are in action. And he made an interesting point that I think John Macbeth, uh, was it, um, and Ben Fui were, were brought in as New Zealand experts to comment on the um, the, the yachting and canoeing, uh, sorry, the um, kayaking and canoeing, because you know, they realised it was just all a bit flat, so they brought them in. Uh, but the things about the radio is quite interesting. I guess so many people are streaming it now. You know, people in the workplace got a broadband connection, you know, can stop and watch Lisa Carrington's races in the afternoon when they're supposed to be working, when, you know, <laughs> back in the day they would have had a radio on and, you know, because you couldn't have your telly on at work. So I guess that's harming um, the radio a bit. But look, TVNZ, I thought their, their TV1 coverage was pretty good. It would have been tempting to go with the old guard, you know, the these well-known sports presenters, but they didn't. They had Scotty Stevenson, Tony Street were their main hosts. They brought in um, 
Sarah Cowley Ross, you know, who was I think a competitor as recent as the 2012 games, who I think is fairly new, relatively new to sports presenting. They had some great studio guests like um, Eddie Dawkins uh, in the cycling. It was really funny and not in a sort of showy way. He wasn't like auditioning like some people do when they when they when they go on. Um, so no, I, I thought they made it extremely watchable. But as someone pointed out, you know, the ad breaks bit of a bummer and. People got sick of watching endless um, trailers for that Paula Bennett quiz show, which debuted tonight, which I made a point of not watching. That's what you should be watching, shouldn't you? <laughs> Maybe for next week we'll get onto that. What was that program? Uh, it's um, it's called Give Us a Clue. Tom Sainsbury, Hilary Berry, Paula Bennett. Um, it's basically charades. So a reheat of a, a very old um, British program. Top Twins with a guest this week. Um, Come on, watch it. You can tell us about it next time you're on. Okay, that's it's a it's a deal. That's a deal. Okay, uh, hero and villain story in the media about the Olympics. Oh yeah, just one great story. Do you remember the Beslan school siege uh, back in 2004 in North Ossetia, a sort of region of Russia? Um, Chechen militants uh, took over a school and a lot of people died. That was actually covered live on TV One in the evening as it unfolded. It was a horrible thing. But one of the kids that day back in 2004. Uh, was Artur Naifarov, um, and he um, won a bronze medal 17 years later uh, wrestling in Tokyo. His mother actually was shot was shot during that siege. So, yeah, that was a cool story. I also like um, Marcus Daniel, the New Zealand tennis player. He won a bronze in the doubles. I had literally never heard of him. I'd heard of his partner, uh, Mark Venus, I think is his name. But um, he runs a charity where sports people can donate uh, 10% of their winnings, which he has pledged to do for the rest of his career. Um, and he also popped up, I, I found this out from reading the uh, uh, latest newsletter of the watchdog group Transparency International, and uh, it said he recently spoke at a UN conference on New Zealand's behalf all about the dangers of corruption in sport. So so pretty cool and a great contrast to um, nasty old anti-vaxxer Novak Djokovic, who was spitting the dummy during his tournament, smashing up his ra- uh, rackets and bailing out of matches while they were actually taking place. So hopefully he won't be back at the Olympics. This text says, uh, TV1 did a wonderful presentation of the Olympics. My family enjoyed watching these events live. I'd have to agree. I thought Scotty Stevenson and Tony Street were very good. Mm, and in fact, I, I did burst out laughing when Tom Walsh, the shot putter, did two show, uh, throws flagged as fouls, and his third one was flagged as a foul as well, which would mean he was completely disqualified. It took about 20 minutes for them to review it and undisqualify him. And when the, they came back into vision, Scotty Stevenson couldn't take the tension, and his, his head was just buried in his keyboard on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the National Party Conference, you want to talk about that? Drew a crowd in Auckland? <laughs> yeah, it did. Some 700 National Party members and delegates, and there's been a lot of talk about that. There was a, a, an interview with uh, John Campbell on TVNZ's Breakfast Show, which is doing the rounds online because uh, the two of them had a bit of a set to about it. But the problem is um, the media are so fixated on the leader, and often with the leader of the opposition these days and before the change of government, they were always under pressure, and the focus always seemed to be on them. How can they lift the party's fortunes or the leader's fortunes? But to me, it's a little bit insulting that these are gatherings of a political party and the membership. Um, And... You know, when they talk about the National Party's a mess, you know, they're really talking about this caucus of MPs. And as we know, there's problems, there's divisions. But, you know, the National Party is a genuine national, nationwide movement with, I think, about 20,000 or more members, you know, 700 of whom actually went all the way to Auckland to attend that conference. But they're invisible in all this coverage. And, you know, the media can talk to 
Judith Collins will find out what she thinks or her doing a speech any time, you know, but I, we just never hear from the party members or, or barely at all. They're barely mentioned. And I think that's a shame. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I just think that that's the whole narrative that the press gallery have. You know, with Judith Collins right now, it's it's all about Judith you know, Collins. The, the division, yeah, the signal she's sending because her leadership's under pressure. But so much, and also because they just keep endlessly talking about, you've triggered me now, uh, they keep endlessly talking <laughs> about the voters. Don't you know, trigger the newsroom. Yeah, uh, I mean, John Campbell in this interview this morning was having a crack at her saying, where was your policy? I listened to your speech, Judith. There was no policy. And she was like, oh, come on, John, you know, the election's two and a half years away. So, well, you don't have to wait for an election to talk about what your party stands for, which is true. But, um, you know, to, to be fair to Judith Collins, the media are always on about it. Say the nine to noon politics slot, uh, Catherine and her two pundits, the left and right, they're always talking about the electoral cycle and will this win or lose votes as if we the people are just coiled springs waiting for the opportunity to vote, um, even when it's two and a half years away. You know, we want to talk about ideas and things, or we want to hear about them. I think people are interested enough in politics. So I think I think that's a pity. I mean, it was a bit weird that this time the party president, there was a focus on him because there was an election. Um, so in that sense, there was a bit of a focus on the party machine, but, you know, that was as far as it went. Uh, while the conference was on, uh, MP Chris Bishop, he inadvertently created a, a bit of a debate about media ethics and someone on social media told him in a direct message that she hated the way he voted for National's rejection of legislation to ban gay conversion therapy. Uh, therapy. And he replied, yeah, me too. And that became a story. It sure did, yeah, when that was posted online. So Chris Bishop initiated the conversation, sent a message, direct message, a personal message, to someone on the Twitter platform saying, I liked an article that you wrote on a certain website. It was about legal matters. She said, yeah, thank you, Chris, but I hated your vote on conversion theory. He said, yeah, me too. So what she did was then post that for everybody to see. And, of course, the uh, hyper Twitter alive, Twitter alert (laughs) political reporters saw that, and it became a story. And then a bit of a debate about, hang on, if these are private messages between a couple of people, is it fair for that to be out in the public? Because, you know, the, the I guess the, the, the talking point was whether he was a bit hypocritical in saying he didn't wasn't in favour or trying to signal he wasn't in favour personally of this, but, you know, had to go along with the party line. So a bit of a debate about that. There is a live debate about how the media harvest people's social media uh, um, comments and whether it's in the public interest to do that. This wasn't really a case of uh, of that. If it had been purely personal between the two of them, maybe there would there would be a case of that. Um, but I you know, I don't think so. In this instance, it's about a, a significant matter of public interest and public controversy. And you know, Chris Bishop wasn't prepared to say uh, in public, "Yes, I don't support this, and I would be happier for to vote, have voted in favour because all of his party didn't, because that was the line uh, they had to take." So yeah, I, I th- some people thought he was naive in expecting that his message to someone like that on such a sensitive issue wouldn't then be made public and be commented upon. Um, But, you know, I think in the end you've just got to accept it's Twitter and there's every chance that sort of thing will happen. So when you say direct message, it was actually on the platform? Yeah, between the two of them on Twitter, if you've signed up, you can send a message that the rest of the world won't. So if you do a tweet, that's like a broadcast, and that's fair game. It was a private message. Yeah, private one between. When she got that unexpected response, she took a screenshot of it and and posted it, and then everyone could see it. And that puts him in a difficult position, I guess, because, you know, the next time it comes up, uh, the issue of conversion therapy and how the party will vote and uh, and so on, um, you know, he's going to be reminded of this. Oh, OK, so you went along with your party. You know, you wore the 
Rainbow Ribbon at the conference, along with other you know MPs from the more liberal wing of the party. But you know, when it came to it, you weren't prepared to stand up for your principles and and cross the floor with a vote. So he's yeah he's going to have to wear that. And and he wanted to signal to someone that he had some sort of um, online uh, conversation with that he wouldn't have voted that way if he'd had his own choice, I guess. But um, but yeah, it went out in public. And once it does, if it's on a, a matter of public interest and controversy, um, sure there'll be a, a news story or two about it. That's a lesson for us all, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, about private messages. And uh, you're talking about it, but do you think uh, the media will make a big deal out of it? No, not not really. I think it'll come and it'll go. But like I say, when the issue comes back, he will certainly be reminded of it. I mean, in a way, he and those other MPs who wore the rainbow ribbons, because the young Nats at the conference uh, criticised the senior uh, the parliamentary party for uh, for not wanting to take that bill to a select committee, um, but interestingly, um, Judith Collins uh, did have a bit of a reaction to it. She backed Chris Bishop by actually attacking the woman who'd sent him the message. Chris has had some uh, text or some sort of message and from. Uh discussion with someone who he considered a close friend and that friend was obviously some sort of far left activist from the look of it um, and I you know, obviously apologise if I'm wrong on that one but I can't imagine anyone not you know, being like that doing that <laughs> it's, it's not really a media issue. That's just politics. But reflexively labelling her, you know, pretty random critic, you know, labelling her a, a, a far left extremist when this is someone Chris Bishop apparently knows. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a bit over the top. That was on the Magic Talk Network in a, an interview that did make a whole bunch of headlines for things she said about Ashley Bloomfield and other people. Um, so maybe it was Magic Talk and that particular audience that it has and um, the leanings of the host and all that. Um, she felt comfortable in saying that. But uh, yeah, that, that's a bit of a surprise and I think that only gave the, the story such as it was a few more legs. He might get a rap on the knuckles for having a close friend yeah. with those leanings. Yeah, it's a bit weird because, I mean, Judith <laughs> Collins saying, you know, he was he was done down by a friend here who shared this message. So in a way she was backing him close and saying friend. he was the victim of it. But then if she is really a close friend, then should she really be going calling her a far left activist as a kind of insult when, I mean, I don't know whether she is or not. And I just want to mention quickly, we're coming up to 11 o'clock, but some good investigative journalism in print. Yeah, super briefly, uh, Current North and South magazine has three really good pieces. One on uh, Chinese language media outlets in New Zealand spreading COVID misinformation. Interesting collaboration between a Chinese journalist uh, or Chinese-speaking journalist and uh, the writer Emmanuel Stokes. Um, one on the difficulties of farming, which is really timely now. It's ex-press reporter Paul Gorman, uh, down on the farm is the name of the story. And then the cover story is about why everything's so expensive in New Zealand by Ollie Nias. All really good, strong stories in the one mag. And the student paper, The Critic, lifting the lid on neo-Nazis, the Action Zealandia movement. Uh, there was a guy called Elliot Weir who um, got a bit of that story was also in the Herald, and he appeared on the project talking about going undercover to um, work out how this far-right movement is recruiting right now and uh, and uh, what they say to members who um, who get in touch wanting to join up. Yeah, that was very interesting. Colin, thank you very much for your time tonight, and uh, what, you're going to go and watch that program so we can you can talk about it. What's it called? I will do it for you. It's called Give Us a Clue, Paula a Bennett's clue. Quiz Show with Hilary Barry and various guests. So... I'll Good watch luck. part one and then I'll watch part two before we go on here next week. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Colin. That's Colin Peacock in our Wellington studio.